Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. We pray right now for your Holy Spirit to come and to rest on each one of us and Albert and that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. And um, we pray for your, um, your power through your spoken word. Pray for wisdom and discernment and um, for faith to believe your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, can you give this to Brandon? I'm sorry, that's the second copy. Christmas exists because Christmas is desperately needed. It's not simply a happy holiday behind Rudolph, special claymation from the 70s that's unique and precious, Will Ferrell's Elf, Christmas Story, all your favorite fun holiday activities, hot chocolate and everything that happens. The, the reality about Christmas is there, there could not be a more grave or serious situation behind Christmas. Christmas exists because it was desperately needed. Christmas happened because hell is real. Christmas is the story of the greatest invasion force in the history of the universe, landing on a beachhead of territory occupied by a demonic tyrant and a humanity doomed to eternal death. That's Christmas. It's an invasion. And this invasion would be the start of a battle so fierce, it would cost the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit everything most precious to them to ensure victory. But victory has come. The invasion force has not just landed. The invasion force has won the day. This is the message of Christmas. Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It is the greatest <laughs> news imaginable to the human heart. God has sent us a savior, a savior to forgive our waywardness, our backsliding, our rebellion, to cleanse us from it. A savior to give us new hearts, power to be what we were meant to be. A people reconciled back to the one they belong to. To be able to know him and love him forever and not be lost and trashed and burned forever like garbage. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. But though the outcome of the war was decided 2,000 years ago, the battle itself, it's replayed, right? Every day in every heart that grapples with who this invader truly is, this Jesus Christ. We still battle in hearts that, that yes, while new and awakened to their rightful king, they still have a vestige of the old enemy in them. In ways big and small, every day, we're tempted, we're tried to either trust this Savior or give up on this Savior in ways big and small. 
to keep depending on our Savior or to start to sneak away and escape back into the darkness? The answer to this battle is not in our strength. I mean, if, if we needed a Savior to come and help us, why would we think that now we're good on our own? No, moment by moment, trial by trial, temptation by temptation, fear by fear, anxiety by anxiety. Our greatest battle, our greatest need is to keep coming back to our Savior and keep leaning on his strength. Another word for this is faith. Faith. We fight the fight of faith. Faith in our Savior to keep being our Savior. There is much we have to do. There's much we're called to. But all of it starts and depends and is sustained by dependence on this Savior. To give us everything we need to even keep following him. To keep dying to ourselves. The power to do that doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from our Savior. And we get this power by depending on him through that word, faith. Faith. You really are who you say you are, Jesus. Your promises really are true, Jesus. I can really depend on you right now here, Jesus. I can't see you with my eyes, but you're here, Jesus. And for every scary thought of what the enemy might do to take me away from you, lure me away and seduce me into darkness, you have the power to keep me. My job, of all jobs that I have to do, <laughs> is to believe that and to keep holding on to that. It's a fight of faith. Christmas is a fight of faith. But God knows this. He knows this is our lot. It's a fight of faith. To claim the victory Jesus won. He knows also that it's not often easy. But one of the most wonderful things that he has done in his word and something that Christmas highlights for me every year in a special way and what I love to do in preaching every year is to come back to these incredible stockpiles of fuel for our faith in his word that I call messianic prophecy. Messianic prophecy in his word God has given us an abundance of prophecies and messages about his coming what we call his advent that's what the word coming means we celebrate the season of advent it's the season of literally that word is his coming we await the second advent his second coming So God, knowing that our power to keep following him comes through faith in him, in order to strengthen our faith in him, has given us hundreds of prophecies, large and small, throughout his word that said, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Long before millennia and centuries, long before he came. Jesus is coming. I'm going to send him. He's going to be born here. He's going to come at this time. When he comes, he will do these things. I've made up my mind to do all that I will do, and he's coming. 
He says this again and again and again and again in his word. And if you're paying attention, you don't have to be a PhD scholar or have gone to seminary. You just have to pay attention. You will see that the Bible is a miracle of messianic prophecy. That what God does in the Bible, no other book can compare to it. Because it's filled with him saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. And here's what I'm going to do. And then he does it. And for the next few weeks, Lord willing, I'd like to take some of these prophecies where God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And then he does it. And I'd like us to just sink our teeth into them so that we might be strengthened in our trust. That trust we need to receive his power. That we might be reconvicted. That Christmas is really what God says it is. It marks this day when our Savior really invaded our world and really has come to take it back. And that being reconvicted will have more strength to hold on to him, more power to rest in him, more vigor to love him, to bear his fruit. And we might be able to even have more courage and power to share the miracle of messianic prophecy with other people that don't know him. That by God's grace might be intrigued, might be by his grace alerted and awakened to the miracle that there is a God who does all that he says and who's controlling history and who's proved it through his word. Well, this morning, I'd like to start with one in particular from one of my favorite books in the Bible. I know it's the favorite of my wife's right now because of what Donna's doing in her Bible study, what's going on at CBS for the women. It's from the book of Isaiah. I know many of you in your mental minds are going, yay, Isaiah, right now. I can't remember when I've heard my wife make so much of a fuss about a book of the Bible as she is doing right now. Thank you, Donna, for God's grace in you and that group that's being part of that. And if you're a woman in this church and you're not going to Donna's Bible study, I'm so sad for you. Just kidding. I mean, kind of. But um, I do want to make a little advert for it because it is really blessing my wife's socks off. And she is um, super grateful. She is super needful of spiritual nourishment and she's getting a lot there, so... I want to commend that to you, especially you single ladies. Holla, holla. Is that like 24 years old now, that phrase? So I want to start with Isaiah. Isaiah was written around 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. It's a book full of so much. It's hard to, you know, not spend four hours just trying to outline the, the themes and the reverberations of God's heart that are in this book. It's so big. It's big both in actual content, like geographically in your Bible, there's so many verses. It's a long book, but it's a book so full of God's heart, like all of God's heart. It's a book of warning and grieving. God's people, Israel, are being warned sternly by the Lord. They've split into two nations, and both nations are getting warned again and again the north kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel being warned from Isaiah against idolatry that's filled the land, against pride and arrogance, against the greed, the neglect of the poor, against their whoring after other gods and their whoring after the military might of the other nations around them, hoping in these nations for their security. God's disgusted and irate over their 
their spiritual prostitution. And he's calling them to consecrate themselves back to him, to be faithful to their spiritual husband, Yahweh, all before it's too late. So it's a book of warning and grieving. It's a book of wrath and judgment. Because through God's omniscience and his sovereign power, he sees that his people will not heed his warnings. And so before any of his judgments come to pass, he tells them they're coming to pass. They're certain. They're actually going to happen. He calls them out again and again through many prophets, but they will not listen. And he says, you will not listen to me, even though I'm warning you. And so he tells them, I will bring Assyria, this horrible nation that comes to destroy the northern kingdom in 722 BC. Destroys you know, in our minds, half of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. And then for a time, Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem sits, they'll be spared. But Isaiah tells us that after rejecting God's warnings, Isaiah foresees a day when Judah, including Jerusalem and the temple, will be destroyed just like the rest of Israel. And this will come to pass about 130 years later, around 600 B.C., and you know, those are dates and names, Assyria and Babylon and Judah. But think about what, what Isaiah is telling us about, like what, what's happened. All that God did. All the, I mean, just think about the tragedy revealed in the book of Isaiah. All that God did, starting from Abraham around 1900 BC, if you want to you know, make it real general. About 2,000 years before Jesus, God starts with this man Abraham in Iraq. And through his sons, through Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, he builds this people. They're slaves for 400 years. And then through Moses, around 1450 B.C., 400 years later or so, he leads them out through miracle after miracle. 40 years in the desert, then Joshua comes and the conquests come. They defeat city after city and take the land God's promised them 500 years back with Abraham. And finally, after hundreds of years of turmoil, they set up their legitimate king, King David, who establishes his throne around 1000 BC. He's been doing this for almost 1000 years now from Abraham to David. Give or take a century or so. But they're finally secured in the land. And then Solomon comes, his son. By the end of Solomon, the kingdom split in two. And by around 600 BC, it's all undone. All of it. It's all over. If you walk through the promised land in 585, you wouldn't see Israel. You'd see a war-ravaged, God-forsaken land filled with Israel's conquerors and the vanquished. You wouldn't see a temple, you wouldn't see a city, you wouldn't see Jerusalem, you'd just see hollowed out promises. The great reversal of all that God set out to do through Abraham. At least it looks that way. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel? The 10 tribes of the northern kingdom were scattered and lost. Judah, Benjamin's descendants, exiled to Babylon. It's a tragedy, Isaiah is. It's a great reversal. But Isaiah is also a book of blindingly beautiful redemption and restoration because God won't let go and he will not give up and he will get his way. And so he will redeem and he will restore. Just as he says, I will come and I will judge, he says, I will rescue, I will heal. 
and I will restore forever. And so God will use all that he does, even in his wrath, to level Israel into a humble remnant. He'll pour out wrath and death and destruction on his own inheritance, but he will use it all to purify and leave a remnant. And then from this remnant comes the chosen one, the coming one. The great reversal is reversed. And there'll be no reversal this time. He's called many things in Isaiah, this coming one. He's called a little child, a son given to us. He's called eternal God. He's called the king who will rule on David's throne forever and ever. He's called the very root of the nation and also the most choice branch that comes from the nation. But of all the titles of this coming one in Isaiah, perhaps servant is the one most appropriate to Isaiah's book. He's the servant of the Lord. And about the last third of this book, Isaiah, God keeps referring to this servant. He has a few different servants in there, but the most striking, powerful servant is this servant, this coming one. And this is the title we'll look at this morning, the servant of the Lord. And this is the prophecy about the servant of the Lord who will come and reverse the great reversal in Isaiah 42, who will undone all that sin and death and destruction and idolatry have done. So I'm gonna read Isaiah 42. Finally, we're gonna get to some actual Bible text this morning. Listen with me as God proclaims the reversal of the great reversal, the undoing of the tragedy through his servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I want to look at three aspects of this passage, of this servant. Try to draw out some encouragement 
for us from each. First, the mission of the servant. The mission of the servant is clear from the first few verses. He has come to establish justice. Look at verse one. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Verse six, the coastlands wait for his law. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. We could say I have called you in justice. This is the central role of the servant in Isaiah 42 is to establish justice. There is tremendous injustice in Isaiah and things that we would all recognize as injustice, things that all our friends in the world, in the, in, in the West right now, would call injustice. Everybody on Facebook would recognize Israel and say there's a lot of injustice. They wouldn't have to be Christians. When you hear the word injustice, the words you think of, the descriptions you think of, that's rampant in Israel. Incredible poverty is in their midst. And those who have don't care and aren't doing anything. Orphans are neglected and abandoned. Workers are oppressed and denied justice, denied their wages. Hungry people are left starving. Homeless people are left homeless by people who can help. The naked go unclothed by people who could clothe them. We'd all categorize this as injustice. It's what we think of when we think particularly of social injustice. And God cares about this. And so the servant's mission will be to bring this injustice to an end. The hungry will be fed. The naked will be clothed. The refugees will be given sanctuary. This is in Isaiah. But what's really interesting about this chapter, with so much focus on justice, is where these ideas about justice occur. Because when you want to know what something is in the Bible, and you're not quite sure what it's referring to, you should look at what's around that thing that you're trying to figure out what it is. So if we take a word like justice that can be pretty wide range in terms of to meaning, we know what is exactly is the injustice going on here? If you look around this passage at what unjust things are going on right around this passage, you'll see something very different simply than social injustice. The injustice you'll see right around Isaiah 42, before and after, is a different kind of injustice than social justice. It's the injustice of idolatry. It's the injustice of people neglecting, rejecting, and spiritually prostituting themselves against Yahweh. And he calls this injustice. Isaiah 41, a few verses before our passage today, God says to the idols of Israel, speaking to them, he says, behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. And then he says about the people who follow these idols in Israel, listen to what he says. He who chooses you is an abomination. To the false worshipers, Here's what God says. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. And God is angry because of this injustice. Do his name. Religious false teaching, idolatry. It's central to the injustice in Israel. 
It's central to it. I would say even more so than homelessness and the abuse of the poor and drunkenness and immorality. This injustice of how God's being treated directly by adultery has even turned God's heart away from the orphan and the widow. Did you hear that? The injustice of Israel's false religion has turned God's heart away from the orphan and the widow. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 9. This is shocking. God says, those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men. He means their youth, I believe. Listen, nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evil doer. And every mouth is speaking foolishness. The poison of Israel's false religions and idolatry have turned God's hearts against the orphan who has become godless and evil, full of wickedness and foolishness. So what I find so provoking here is that in the mission of the servant to establish justice on the earth is that it is just as much, if not more, justice for God. God is the defamed, mistreated, if you will say, victim here. God hates the injustice done to mankind in every oppressive act. He cries out for the poor in chapter 58 like you wouldn't believe. The foreign refugee who seeks asylum from Moab in chapter 16, God cares about the foreign refugee. We can't ignore that heart of God. And most of us young people, especially young people, understand that about God. He's a God who cares about social justice. It's not a political issue for God. It's a moral issue for God. But in so many other places in Isaiah, God cries out against idolatry and false worship. God cries out against him, his heart, being rejected and being ignored. We can't ignore that part of God's heart. And I feel like in our nation, in the air that we breathe around here even, I, I feel like it can seem like people can be selective about injustice. We like the injustice cause we like. <laughs> and you can even dock it to left and right politically. We might be very religious in our church attendance, but we lack real zeal when it comes for the refugee or for the homeless person. We might be very socially minded about the homeless person or the refugee. We're concerned about the rights of mistreated people. But we are as dead to God being honored in our personal lives as we could be. He means nothing to us, left and right. Tim Keller says, Jesus is not from the left or from the right. He's from above. I love that. And, and though this song is about the servant, I believe there's some personal application secondarily for us here. Just to ask you along the way, are you selective about how you see injustice in a way that isn't where it needs to be for God's heart. Do you, do you see the poor and the refugee and you judge the poor as a loser implicitly quickly in your heart? You go there, bum, 
out of work won't work. And there can be real issues with that, right? But does your heart just quickly run to that? Do you see the refugee and think of them as a threat? Simply as a threat, not my America. I, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm talking about the heart of God reflected in Scripture for the needy. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan had a faulty understanding of God. He ignored a huge part of the scriptures through their faulty religion or their broken religion. It was, it was half right, it was half wrong. But the Samaritan alone stopped for that beaten sojourner and he alone tenderly cared for him and he alone was commended by the Lord in that story. But the theologically correct Jewish leader ignored the victim and he was denounced by the Lord. So we need to not be, we need to be careful not to be selective about our injustice in our minds. On the other hand, on the other hand, for what we might want to term our more left-leaning friends, or maybe they're not our friends <laughs> in a lot of cases, right? When you consider how Jesus Christ's reputation and honor is ignored and trashed in our society, in our society, when you consider how God is ignored and rejected and trashed by socially conscious people, does it even register as injustice to you? I'm talking to you, believer. Do you see that and say, oh my gosh, they're going to the homeless shelter and they're atheistic, they don't care about God. That's unjust. They're interested in feeding the poor. They care about the refugee and they think God is a joke. That's a terrible injustice. Do you, does that occur to you? The first line of the only specific prayer gives us to pray is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is to be our first prayer before the homeless, before the refugee, before our needs, our first prayer is, hallowed be your name. God's evaluation of our hearts on the scales of justice, on the scales of justice, is first a matter of how we treat Christ in our heart. And so some application for us. God wants your prayers for the persecuted. He also wants your prayers for his glory. God wants your prayers for his glory. He also wants your prayers for the persecuted. Yes, God wants you to give your offerings, your tithes, whatever you want to call it, to the church. But he wants you to be concerned for the struggling single mom in your church. God wants you to be concerned for the single struggling mom in your church but he also doesn't want you to neglect your church. Show up for worship. Fight the battle to show up for worship on time, to sing to the Lord. Show up, but show compassion for the refugee. Even if that's beginning for you just with a hard attitude. Like, I'm not saying you're gonna vote for this or ask for this policy change, but in your heart, have compassion for them. Let that be a start if it's not there. This is the heart of the servant of the Lord. This is the justice that God has come to bring. Number two, the heart of the servant. <clears throat> the heart of the servant. If justice, if perfect righteousness is going to be attained by the servant, if that's his mission, how is he going to accomplish it? How will he establish justice? We're told he will. 
the song makes this clear that he will not stop until justice is established. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. It says for justice for man, justice for God. He will make it happen. But how will he do it? And this is where things get particularly mesmerizing when we think about this servant's mission. See, there's much talk in Isaiah about God bringing a certain kind of justice. It's the justice of his judgments. God is bringing justice in the form of the wrath of nations upon nations. Through God's just judgments, Assyria will destroy Israel. Through God's just judgments, establishing his justice, Babylon will destroy Assyria for what they've done to Israel. Through God's just judgments, Persia will destroy Babylon. Nation against nation, despotic warlord rages against despotic warlord and ravages people through war and violence. But look at the servant of Yahweh. How does he establish justice? He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The servant of the Lord is not a war lord. He is not full of shouting. He is not full of bluster and rage and brashness and violence. He comes in gentleness. He comes and tells us, I am gentle and humble of heart. My yoke, it's a real yoke. I'm the Lord, but it's easy. My burden is light when you really wear it. It's not like Sennacherib. It's not like Assyria's yoke, Babylon's yoke. Now, yes, Jesus does shout a few times in the Bible. He does cry out a few times in the Bible. He even turns over the money changers, right? But scripture is not a technical manual. Like you're not being asked, to, oh, no, 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 I remember Jesus shouted here. Therefore, this can't be about Jesus. The Bible's a lie. Well, Yahweh is, is contrasting the servant with the violence of all that's around him in Isaiah. Yahweh is revealing the tone and the heart of his servant. When he heals, he doesn't blow a trumpet and shout in the streets, look what I did. He often tells people not to tell anybody. For a long time, he's quietly, secretly trying to go about his ministry. In fact, for, for three decades, he just works in total obscurity as a carpenter's son. And when he does come out to, as, the, as, as Israel's redeemer, he's looking all, of, all over the place for lonely places during his ministry. When he finally does officially come out in public as the Messiah a few weeks, a week before his cross, what does he do? He publicly, purposely gets on a donkey. <clears throat> he, does to, he does this to show who he is. 
Because everyone around him, in that throng, in that crowd, who wants the Messiah, they want him not on a donkey, folks. They want him on a war horse. They want him as a, as a military powerhouse. But he says, you missed it. That's not who I am. I'm getting on a donkey. I'll come on a horse later. But now is not that time. So this is the servant. And what do we do with this beautiful verse? Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. If you're a struggler like I am, these are, this is medicine to your heart. Hear this. I can go back to that phrase every day through all of my crap, all of my rebellion, all of my struggles. Bruised reed, he will not break. The bruised reed is the weakest of plants. It's hanging on by a thread almost. It's ready to split. It's ready to be done. But in contrast to the the conquering, bloodthirsty foreigners in Isaiah's judgment prophecies, these warlords, zealous for wiping out the weak, Yahweh's servant comes to tenderly restore and heal and preserve the weak. So he comes for the sick and the diseased and the demon-possessed. And no one in the whole recorded New Testament whoever comes to him for mercy, listen, I've said this before, I'll say it again because this is him. No one who ever comes to him for mercy, they want to argue, if they want to prove their righteousness, it's a different story. But if they come to him simply for mercy, no one, zero, is ever turned away. He will not break the broken, he will not hurt the hurting, and the desperate, he will sustain them and care for them. That's what he does to everyone who comes broken, hurting, and desperate to him. And a smoldering wick, what's that about? A smoldering wick, it's a picture of of, of something that's uh, similarly just about to be destroyed. Whatever flame of strength or vigor or zeal might be in this one, it's so small it's ready to go out. But he doesn't come to finish it put an end to it, to snuff out that barely beating spiritual heart. Peter, remember Peter? He was a fiery flame. He was not smoldering the night that Jesus was captured. He pulls out his sword, cuts off Malchus' the soldier's ear. But a few hours later, Peter is smoldering. He's denied that he even knows Jesus in fear before a slave girl, I believe. And in utter anguish, he's in tears. He knows his true strength is nothing but a smoldering wick. He is a fraud. And he's been exposed as a fraud. Not an intentional fraud. Not a duplicitous, malicious fraud like Judas. Not a knowing fraud. Not a premeditated fraud. He just thought he was much better than he truly found out he was. And he collapsed in the reality of what he truly was. A smoldering wick, ready to go out and abandon his Lord in his worst hour. But what does Jesus do before it even happens? Peter, I didn't come here to snuff out your smoldering wick, son. Brother, you don't know it, but you are just a smoldering wick. 
but I didn't come to snuff that out. I'm praying for you. Because I'm praying for you, your smoldering wick won't be snuffed out. It will be fanned into flame. And it will burn very, very bright. (laughs) Until the day that you're crucified for me, like I was crucified for you, it'll burn so bright. So he doesn't come to burn out whatever little embers of spiritual fervor are left in you. His heart is to fan them. A woman comes to him with five husbands. <laughs> what a broken lady. Five husbands. She plays cat and mouse with Jesus. She wants him. She doesn't want him. Maybe he's the Messiah, but she's so ashamed of her desperate joke of a life of broken home after broken home. She just hides, closes down the conversation, but Jesus comes after her. He did not come to snuff her out. And so he fans her broken, smoldering wick into a flame and lights up her town with the hope of the Messiah. So what are you this morning, right now? What are you today? Are you mighty and strong? Kick and ask for the Lord. (laughs) Sorry, oops, let that one slip out. Jesus would say to you, watch out if you think you're standing, lest you fall. Jesus would say to you, if any man thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he does not know anything. (laughs) Jesus would say to you, apart from me, you can do nothing. But maybe you are aware of that. Maybe you're more wearing being a bruised reed. You feel about ready to break. You're a smoldering wick, feeling like the oil in your lamp is just about to go out. Well, the servant of the Lord is here this morning. He is in our midst He is not here to break you or snuff you out. That's the other guy. When you hear that voice of condemnation and accusation and hopelessness, that's not the servant of the Lord. That's the other guy. He is here to be who he says he is, who God commanded him to be, a servant. Can you hear him this morning saying, oh, bruised reed, smoldering wick, sit down before me. Cry out to me. Seek me out. I did not call you to seek me out in vain. I call you to seek me out every day again and again that I might heal you. Let me kneel. Let me, the servant of the Lord, kneel before you and take your filthy, beaten feet in my hand and let me wash them with my own hands. Because I'm the servant of the Lord. See, the servant of Yahweh, he's not a man of the sword. He doesn't come to destroy you. He doesn't come to spill anyone's blood except his own. For all your bruises, all your lack of zeal, he comes to take you up into his arms and covenant him to you. You see that word covenant in our song this morning. Let's find verse six, if you would, Brando. I am the Lord. I have called you. Now he's speaking to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, listen to this, I will give you as a covenant for the people. 
a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons and the prisons from those who sit in darkness. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I know a lot of us who are familiar with this passage, we want to make a beeline to the fact that the gospel is not going to be just for the Jews. It's going to go out to the whole Gentile world and how revolutionary that is. And absolutely, that's so amazingly clear in Isaiah again and again and again. But I want to bring you back to this little phrase. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now, covenant is an agreement. It's an until death do you part, binding agreement between two parties. If you got married, if you got married in a church, you made a covenant. If you got married in a biblical ceremony, you, got, you, you made a commitment till death. I'm bound to you forever until I can't breathe anymore. But notice the servant isn't said to make a covenant with us. Yahweh isn't said to make a covenant with us. The passage uses this interesting words, at least in the translation, every translation I can find. The servant is the covenant. The servant is the covenant. The servant is the agreement. A covenant says, I will do this, you will do that. God says, I will do this, and your job in a covenant is to say, and I will do this. That's what's right here on our covenant. It says, God says he will do these things. Albert says, I will do these things. Our covenant. What does God do? He comes and he says, here, I will do these things. Read our covenant. And when you look at your responsibilities, what does it say? It says, Jesus. It says Jesus. God says, I will be your God. You will buy me a people. What's your job? Your job is to say, look, Jesus. Look who he is for me. Look what he's done for me. This is my covenant guarantee. It just says Jesus. It doesn't say anything about what I'm gonna do or what I'll be for you or how I'll pull things off or how awesome I am or my obligations. It just says Jesus. That's all I've got in my hands in this sheet of paper. It's just Jesus who he is for me, what he's done for me. That's my covenant with you, God. That's my security before you, God. That's my assurance before you, God. That's my only way to stay with you. That's my only way to know I won't give up on you because of Jesus. It's Peter's only way to not keep running that night away from Jesus. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't his character. He's gonna finally get it together and pull himself up by his bootstraps. It was Jesus. That's all he had in his hand when he finally comes back. Peter, I prayed for you because on your obligation sheet, it's me. On what will get you through the door, it's me. He is our covenant. We don't represent ourselves. It's not made on our behalf. It's made for us. The servant is our representative with Yahweh. He becomes our covenant agreement. He is our life with God. He is our truth about God. He is our only way back to God, not our works, as Aaron spoke to us this morning. Not because of anything we had done, but because of his grace and mercy. That's what it means, that he is our covenant. He didn't make one. (laughs) He is the covenant. Jesus, that's all you got between you and God. Yes, pray, have quiet times. Listen, you will never experience him if you never pursue him. 
If you never set aside time for him, don't expect to have him in your time. But, but don't exchange Jesus and put quiet times on here and fasting and good works. It won't work with God. It's not a contract he's going to honor. How will he do this? How will he establish righteousness? Now, we're Christians, so we read the New Testament. We read the second part. We know this. But I want you to see what's here, what's here in Isaiah, because that's where a lot of this power is for our faith. Realize God's been saying this for a long time. Even the Jewish people who reject Jesus and love Isaiah, he's right here. This is why this prophecy is so powerful. Listen, it says here, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. You see that verse? See verse four. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Every time I read this, it's saying that this guy will not give up. He's awesome. He's strong. He'll make it all the way to the end. But I'm, I'm going a little bit, I'm asking more of a question than I am telling you exactly what's going on here. But as I've been thinking and praying through this particular passage and the wording here, what I find so impossible to ignore are these words that are all mingled together here. Disheartened, crushed, covenant, establishing justice. Listen to those words. Take them out of Isaiah and think about the New Testament. Think about the Passion Week. Think about the crucifixion and hear these words again. Disheartened, crushed, covenant, justice, established. Is Isaiah prophesying that the Messiah will be so strong he'll never be disheartened or crushed? Or is he prophesying that the way he will establish justice on the earth, the apex of that will be when he is disheartened and crushed. See, it says, it doesn't say he never will be disheartened or crushed. It says he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And you can look at different ways to express that word until. It can mean before. It can mean up to. Isaiah will tell us in just a few chapters. Isaiah himself in this same book, will tell us in just a few chapters that the only way the servant of Yahweh will be able to establish righteousness on earth is by being crushed. In Isaiah 53, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to put him to grief. In Gethsemane, Christ was indeed disheartened. On the cross, he was indeed crushed. Jesus will cry in crushing, disheartened agony from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer from heaven will be, I have forsaken you so that justice will be established throughout the whole earth. So that I will make you a covenant for all nations. I will crush you and dishearten you so that everyone who deserves to be crushed and disheartened, who comes to you, will instead receive covenant mercy. And I will establish justice. I will establish righteousness. Your sins are paid for through this servant. 
Justice is not abused by the servant's crushing. Justice is established by the servant's crushing. God gets to be just, as Paul says, and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That's what Romans 3 says. He says that God demonstrates his own justice through the cross. He establishes justice. Sins paid for. God is so passionate about justice, men and women. Don't be fooled. God is a God zealous and passionate for justice, for himself and for your neighbor. And justice is abused every day and God is furious about it. But through the servant, he has established justice for eternity. Briefly, ending here, the glory of God in the servant. The glory of God in the servant. Stay with me for just a few moments more and see something again beautiful. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is all part of the same thought complex, I believe, here. Follow me here. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. If you read through Isaiah around this chapter, you will see God accusing and putting on the bench the the idols of the land. And he says to them again and again, you are worthless. You are not gods, you're worthless. You can't do anything. And he puts these gods, these false gods on trial and he says, tell me what's gonna happen. Predict what's gonna happen. Tell me what did happen. Tell me anything, he says. Good or bad, prophesy. And they can't, they're deaf. They're mute. They're pieces of stone. They're pieces of wood. And these people are bowing down prostrate before them. And God says here, he says, I'll tell you what will happen. I will tell you what will happen because I will make it happen because I know all things and I'm in control of all things. I'm no idol. I'm no graven image. I'm the Lord. That's what he's saying in verse eight. And I'm the Lord, so I can. New things declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. That's how you will know the real God from the idol. He said it would happen and it happened. He says it's going to happen and it does happen. That's Yahweh. That's the one who's in control. And this is where we close today. In Isaiah, God contends with the futility of the idols by saying, I'm the only one who knows what's going to happen before it happens, who says it's going to happen and then it does happen. And that's what I'm doing with this servant guy. I'm bringing him. He's gonna do what I want. And folks, when we look into Isaiah in the next coming weeks, it's gonna get so even more shockingly perfect in terms of what God will tell us about what Jesus will do. We're gonna look at, Lord willing, we're gonna look at Daniel. We're, listen, God proves it again and again and again. He says it's going to happen and it happens. God does what he says before he does it. 
and then he doesn't. Jeremiah, David, Ezekiel, Daniel, Numbers, Genesis, Micah, Malachi, Hosea, Zechariah, on and on and on and on. God tells us again and again what's going to happen, and then he doesn't. And it's never more true than when it surrounds Jesus Christ. On Jesus, God surrounds him with prophecy. On Jesus, hundreds and thousands of years before he comes, God covers him with prophecies. On Jesus, God has set his seal that he does what he says before he does it. We will see that he has told us who Jesus would be, where he would be, when he would be, why he would be. God is so passionate about making Jesus clear to you and to I because he's so passionate about Jesus, first of all. He loves his son. And he wants his name exalted, but he's also passionate about you. He wants you holding on to Jesus. He wants you knowing you can trust him. And so he says, pay attention to this Jesus. I really did send him. I really am God. And Peter, I think it's First Peter, Peter says, we have the prophetic word made more clear. And he says, we do well to pay attention to that word as to something shining bright in a very dark place. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But Peter calls us today to pay attention to the God who's told us that Jesus is coming and then brought him. Because he's our only hope, folks. Christmas is a very sobering reality. It is an invasion story. It is a rescue story. We need this Jesus. We need to hold on to him. He's come to save us from a real judgment that he's bringing. He's not kidding. God is being mistreated in this world and he is not indifferent about it. He's a God of justice and he's going to repay. But we have Jesus, our sanctuary, and your friends, your relatives, your family, they need Jesus. My family, my brothers, my sister, my, we need this sanctuary. Oh, Lord, help us wake up to this. Let me pray and we'll close. Lord God, I just, I just ask you to help us, Lord. See the truth behind this Christmas story, this cute baby in this little manger. He's an invader God coming to take back the glory that belongs to him. Coming to execute justice. And Lord, all mankind will pay for their sins and the way that we've treated you. And we will either pay on the cross through the gift of your son or we will pay in eternal death. Lord, forgive us, even your people, for how we, we turn from your glory. We turn from trusting how good you are, how true you are. Give us power again. Wash our eyes again, Lord God. Heal us again to, to more, Lord, lovingly follow you, to more gladly trust you, to see you as you are, so good and so kind. Give you what you deserve, Lord, our hearts. Help us to be, Lord, through your Son, who is a light to the Gentiles. Help us to be a light to our neighbors. 
Help us not to be ashamed of the one who came to rescue them. We ask you to do this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.